Our scripture reading today is Luke seven thirty six to 47. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is given little loves little. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Um, It is actually my deep privilege to introduce the next speaker. Um, Undoubtedly. Many of us in this room has have, have had many conversations with him from architecture to art to wine selections to liqueur to talking about geology or history. Um, the depth of this man seems to just go on and on and on. Um, I've had the privilege of engaging him on a very deep personal level, uh, sometimes uh, very painful, very honest conversations with each other. And what Carrie says actually rings so true is that we realize in the midst of our conversation, even at the end of our conversations, we don't belong to ourselves. Um, and so I want to introduce my brother, mi hermano, Stan. I am not possessed of confessor's stature, so I have to adjust this. (laughs) Thank you this morning. It's a privilege to look at God's word together and kind of share it and see, you know, what he might have for us. Um, I just would briefly like to start out maybe on a little more somber note. Um, Brad and Janelle and Shannon, who live in our building, Shannon's my roommate, um, about two Wednesdays ago, we lost a neighbor and a friend, Eric Thomas, who we affectionately knew as Bear. He was our neighbor and our friend, and sadly, he was victimized by some of the senseless gun violence that plagues our city. And we've been touched very directly by that. 
Um, I didn't know Bear that long. I just moved to East Garfield Park into Brad's building uh, about, uh, it would be a year ago this December, actually. And um, notwithstanding that, you know, Bear and I started to get to know each other. It actually started over a what I consider pretty nice-looking Boston Celtics baseball cap lid. And uh, uh, we were watching a game and uh, ordered some pizza by Uber Eats. And so I ran out to pick that up wearing the lid, and he saw it, and some of the guys saw it. And through that, we you know started to uh, get to know each other. Um, it was, in, you know, Bear uh, was, you know, part of one of the local street organizations and was involved in some of the street business. But notwithstanding that, you know, he uh, befriended me when I would just show up outside in front and he would be out there. He would be able to stand the man and come over and give me a big hug. And, you know, it was really tragic that, you know, as he was only 26, as I was starting to get to know him, that he was taken from us. Fortunately, Brad and Janelle had the opportunity to know him longer and was enriched. But, you know, I wondered, you know, why would someone from such a completely different background and just whole life experience, you know, want to engage in, you know, in friendship and get to know me? And I believe it's true of Brad and Janelle and Shannon. I think that in some way the Lord Jesus who indwells in us was reaching out to bear and kind of calling him and just kind of interacting with him through us, maybe unconsciously, because that's kind of how the Lord works. And in that spirit, you know, the Lord being the Lord of life and being no respecter of persons, but loving everyone whom he has created um, he is our Messiah and he is God the Son and he's the righteousness of God incarnate which we celebrate now at this time of season in our Advent so I want to just take a little brief look at Jesus this strange king who really is the friend of sinners. We're going to take a look at three narratives, one of which was amply shared this morning. I want to thank the reader for that. Uh, one is short and two are slightly longer. But they're remarkable for the comparisons and contrasts that illuminate this strange king as the, fr as the true friend of sinners and, if you will, truly the friend of sinners. So the first one is in, in Luke again, but in, later on in chapter 15, it's very short. And here the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, I just want to provide a little background here. 
because this there's something going on here in this time period in this location first century palestine tax collectors were fellow jews who however served as representatives of the occupying roman government they collected any and all types of tolls taxes customs but they regularly and harshly extorted excessive amounts from their own people and with the result that the uh, Jewish uh, populace largely despised and hated tax collectors. Sinners, this other term, were people who religious Jews regularly felt missed the mark and fell short of what God approves in terms of thought and attitude and behavior, particularly in a blatant and public manner. They would be considered people who were literally devoted to sin or preeminently sinful and especially wicked. Okay, so you have here what might be considered the dregs of first century Palestinian society all coming to this man to hear him. The Pharisees, however, they regarded as a sinner anyone who failed to keep God's law as they interpreted it. Now, the Pharisees were a sect, one of several of Jewish religious leaders who resided primarily in Jerusalem, and they strove to shape the religious thought and religious life of first century Palestine. They disseminated their teachings broadly, and they enjoyed a considerable influence over the local scribes who were, would preach in the synagogues according to their interpretation of the law and the prophets, the Bible that the Jewish populace had at that time. Now, the Pharisees took pride in outward conformity to many extra-biblical traditions and regulations. Their approach was very pragmatic, and they were especially scrupulous to maintain a righteous status and what in their mind would be a righteous status before God, which included personal and corporate separation from sin. In fact, the root word from which the name Pharisee is derived actually means to separate or to detach. So with this in mind, as we look at this first narrative, one wonders why are tax collectors and sinners drawing near to hear Jesus? One reason might be the curiosity that naturally follows celebrity. Uh, Jesus was popularly known as a prophet that did miracles, and perhaps these folks came to see a show. One other reason might be to hear words of comfort and peace that in contexts like these, Jesus tended to speak, especially to those who were downtrodden and outcast. And I think this gets a little closer maybe to what's going on. Because even some of the temple guards that at one time were sent to arrest Jesus came back empty-handed, replying to their masters, never man spoke like this man. A third reason that 
I'm, it kind of intrigues me may lie in the actual character in who Jesus really is. You see, he is God, the Son. He is the second person of the Trinity, and he is the holiness and righteousness of God himself incarnate in flesh, which makes it to me absolutely a mind-blowing miracle that tax collectors and sinners could actually safely engage and interact with God's holiness and righteousness. Because scripture abounds in descriptions of God's righteousness and its total antithesis to evil and sin. Here's just a few. Paul tells us that God dwells in unapproachable light. Habakkuk, God is of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look at wrong. Exodus, God tells Moses directly, You cannot see my face and live, for no man, no man shall see me and live. Revelation, the cherubim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Ezekiel's very plain, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. So the holiness and the righteousness of God are real, and they're no joke. Yet, but God, the same scripture tells us astonishingly that the evil abhorring and sin incinerating holiness and righteousness of God became flesh and dwelt among us. Almighty God sent his holy and righteous son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. God, a very God, as the creed says, becomes man. The ineffable righteousness of God becomes incarnate. He becomes enfleshed, fully human as he is fully divine which is precisely why we celebrate Advent at all. As a blessed result, the tax collectors and sinners all could come near and hear Jesus, who is the true, authentic righteousness of God, and not a perverted, man-made caricature of it, and they could do it without getting destroyed. Tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes could now touch, experience, learn from and follow this righteousness of God firsthand, unrejected. And Jesus, who's God's righteousness with us, demonstrated to them what God is truly like and he embodied and projected God's heart for them. When he saw the crowds, Matthew writes, he had compassion. Splanknisomai, which is the Greek word for that. Bowels of compassion for them. Deeply moved at their condition. Because they were harassed, 
and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. By striking and truly sad contrast, the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leadership of that day, were unhappy that a righteous God chose to receive and eat with tax collectors and sinners. In fact, the scripture is more pointed in that one narrative I read earlier. It says that the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. And that word means murmuring, conveying a sense of continuous, heavy complaining. And ironically, it's the same word that is used of the Israelites as they grumbled to Moses and Aaron and grumbling against God, actually, in the wilderness of the Exodus. So in some sense, nothing really changed with them. This tragic behavior by the scribes and Pharisees also continues in the next narrative, which we're going to look at, where God's righteousness incarnate becomes proactive in reaching out to tax collectors and sinners. Jesus passed on, and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. What's amazing is that God's righteousness invites unrighteousness to follow him. And as Jesus reclined at a table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, because he didn't, they didn't direct that question to him, they directed it to the disciples. When Jesus heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now Luke has an account of this same event, and it adds some interesting detail. Matthew um, is referred to by Luke as Levi, and most scholars believe it might be a compound name, Matthew, Matthew Levi. But he, in, in the Lucan account, Levi throws a huge dinner party for Jesus after he is called, and a great feast in his house, it's called. And there was a large company of tax collectors and sinners reclining at the table, not just a few, friends. The significance of Matthew throwing a great feast for Jesus and his disciples, breaking bread with Matthew in his house and with his homies, cannot be understated. To the Pharisees and scribes, it was nothing short of scandalous, scandalous, Barry James, who's the Associate Professor of Pastoral Ministries at the Dallas Theological Seminary, 
wants to share some insights about the significance of being at table, which is the term that's used in scriptures for what took place there, which Jesus undoubtedly appreciated and which in turn celebrates our Lord's perfect humanity. Dr. James writes, sharing tables is one of the most uniquely human things we do. No other creature consumes at its food at a table. And sharing tables with people reminds us that there is more to food than fuel. Tables are one of the most important places of human connection. We are often most fully alive when sharing a meal around a table. And throughout the Bible, God has a way of showing up at tables. The table is the place where broken sinners find connection and belonging. And so it is that we find the righteousness of God incarnate reclining at a table with Matthew and a great company of tax collectors and sinners. What a miracle of pure, unadulterated grace this is. Yet, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with these tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus, of course, answers them as we have read, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus astoundingly cites Hosea 6.6 to the Pharisees. Hosea, the prophet, God commanded to marry, that is, join himself to an unfaithful prostitute. What the Pharisees couldn't or wouldn't grasp is that becoming one with sinners is precisely what the righteousness of God does. Daryl Bach, who's another professor, professor of New Testament studies at Dallas Theological Seminary, positions it this way in a real compelling manner. He writes, Many people think that one must choose absolute separatism if one is to remain pure. But for Jesus, the righteousness of God incarnate is a false choice. Jesus views people in terms of what God could make them into, rather than pigeonholing them into who they currently are. There is no compromise with holiness in his relationships with sinners because one of the very characteristics of God's holiness is the way he reaches out in mercy to those in need. God graciously takes the sinner who is responsive to him and begins the work of transformation. 
often it is often what wins an outsider to God is genuine friendship. This brings us to the final narrative we'll look at, uh, where we will see the righteousness of God incarnate become intimate with public, blatant unrighteousness. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, Say it, teacher. I'm going to just skip a section. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Here we see a Pharisee inviting Jesus to eat with him, to be at table with him. And this too raises some questions, especially in the light of what we've seen so far. What were the Pharisee's motives? Did he, a teacher of Israel, see a chance to learn more about God from one who was called a, the prophet of Galilee? Or was the Pharisee more calculating? Was he seeking to vet Jesus, to see if he truly is one who speaks for God, which is what a prophet is? His response in this narrative to the woman of the city touching Jesus somewhat suggests this. But I wonder if there might not be something deeper. Was even the Pharisee's veiled, covert unrighteousness attracted to the authentic, forgiven, restoring righteousness of God incarnate? Did this Pharisee, deep in his heart, wish he could come to Jesus like the desperate, broken woman of the city? Was he unwilling or was he afraid 
to suffer the loss in status, acclaim, and wealth that such a move most surely would entail. The narrative doesn't say. We do know, however, that some years later after this, another Pharisee made just such a move, declaring plainly that he had willingly suffered the loss of all things for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. Public, blatant unrighteousness personified in the woman from the city who was a sinner had no hesitation in making the move that Simon the Pharisee had hesitated to make. She had nothing to lose, for she had already lost everything, status, reputation in the community, probably also wealth and even health. And she knew it. She was not ashamed to stand publicly at the righteousness of God incarnate's feet, wetting them with her tears, drying them with her hair, and anointing them with ointment. And having nothing to lose, she had everything to gain. And she did in Jesus. Amazingly, but perhaps not so amazingly, the righteousness of God incarnate let public, blatant unrighteousness touch him, handle him, yes, worship him in what at the time and in that culture must have been a shocking display of intimacy and one that was as blatant as her sin. This must have just rocked Simon's pious elite gathering of other Pharisees and scribes. This was, that behavior was terribly incongruent with their understanding of what a prophet, one who speaks for Yahweh, would actually do. Instead, however, what they got to see was how the real righteousness of God behaves towards repentant unrighteousness, righteousness that desires mercy not sacrifice. Righteousness that credits a penitent, unrighteous woman's embrace as worship and forgives that unrighteousness, replacing it with the righteousness of God himself. Oh, the depths of the riches, of the wisdom, of the knowledge and mercy of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable are his ways. Like the penitent tax collector of Jesus' parable, Matthew Levi, the woman of the city who was a sinner, and perhaps some of the great crowd of tax collectors and sinners at Matthew's table, they all went back to their houses justified, transformed, and indwelt by the righteousness of God. Scripture tells us, praise the Lord, that anyone who is unrighteous, who is a tax collector, who is a sinner, who is a prostitute, can come to Jesus, the word of God made flesh, 
the righteousness of God incarnate, they can embrace His cross as their full, complete, and final payment for their unrighteousness and place their soul's eternal welfare into His nail-pierced, trustworthy, and loving hands. Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, is Emmanuel, God with us. See, He's the one that invites you, that invites us, sinners all, to come to Him and be reborn. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I, Jesus the Messiah, will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Anyone who does that becomes united to Jesus Christ and is forever indwelt by Him, becoming a cell of the body of Christ on earth, the church. Jesus, our strange King, says to us who have, No longer do I call you servants, but I have called you friends. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And lo, I will be with you always, even unto the ending of the world. See, the righteousness of God incarnate calls us all to partake of him, to join him as he restores his sin-scarred people and creation. He calls you and me this Advent season because Jesus, this strange king, the friend of sinners, calls you and me his friend. He invites you to become part of his body, the church, if you haven't. He invites you to be like him, the righteousness of God incarnate at school, at work, in a broken, underserved community, or on the block, in a fallen world of sinners where one beggar joyfully tells another beggar where to get the bread of life. Thank you and God bless.